How's that? Good. Daryl, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but I think I want to tell everybody to tell you things. Every, uh, every week that I've been here, he's hooked me up, wired my mics for me, got me prepared. Uh, not only is he helping me, there's five microphones and instruments that are running seamlessly, and he's all up there by himself working in the video as well. Also online. Every week, him and Barb have put the material from the sermons on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night online so that you can listen to them either through the church website or through podcasts. And so that's a, that's a lot of work that uh, you put on your shoulders, and it's all behind-the-scenes work. And so we, uh, sometimes we forget when people do work behind the scenes, don't we? But thank them for it. I'm thankful. My mom's thankful because <laughs> that's right. My mom listens to my sermons. That's what moms have to do. So uh, she, she's thankful. All right, let's, let's go ahead and open Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 13 through 23. And I think before we get started, I should give you a warning that this is a hard passage. It's hard for a couple reasons. Uh, one is because it's sad. Every passage we've looked at so far has been this exciting, Jesus has come, the genealogies, and we see it's the son of Abraham, the son of David, he's the Christ. Right? Or then we looked at this miraculous birth that says we can believe the unbelievable about Jesus because look at how he came into the world. Remember last week we looked at this miraculous star that brought these ambassadors from the nations and crowned him as king of the Jews and, and really king of the world. And so we've seen exciting, exciting, exciting. And today, our king becomes a fugitive. He's going to run away from Herod and into Egypt. You're going to see the nation of Israel weeping and refuse to be consoled because of the suffering. And we'll see that he is lowly and despised. And so the subject matter today is hard. It's hard to look at our king and his humiliation. It's also hard because of all the passages in Matthew, this probably stacks up as one of the most difficult to interpret. Right? So this is, Matthew's going to quote the Old Testament three times, and three times he's going to say Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. But any skeptic who opens this book up, they're going to say Matthew doesn't understand what's going on in the Old Testament. And so we're going to have to do some hard work and some hard study to understand how exactly does Matthew understand the Old Testament. And it's going to be some hard work for us tonight. My dad used to always say that nothing worth having comes easy. So I'm hoping that our hard work tonight will bear, bear fruit that's worth having. That you'll think, uh, this was worth it at the end. It'll be worth it because, one, hopefully you'll fall in love with the Bible. You'll be able to read the Old Testament the way Matthew read the Old Testament, and that will be exciting. Even more exciting, that as we see the humiliation of Jesus, we'll know that he humiliated himself because he loved us. And I love him because he first loved me. Right? Um, 
I had to boil the whole passage down into a single sentence, one main idea is that Jesus endures all the sufferings of Israel so that we can have a life-changing hope. All right, Matthew's going to show us that the suffering that characterized the birth of Israel and the nation of Israel also characterizes Jesus. So in other words, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the new Israel. And because Jesus was willing to endure the sufferings of Israel, we can have a life-changing hope in him as our Messiah. I hope that will excite us today. Um, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll read the passage together. Dear Lord, as we prepare to open up a hard text, I pray that you will open up our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive it. Give us wisdom so that we can understand your word. Give us a soft heart so that we can respond well to it. And at the end of tonight, I pray that we'll all be able to say that we've fallen more deeply in love with you. In your name I pray, amen. Yes. <clears throat> all right, I'll start reading Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 13. <clears throat> and when they de- were departed, and they as the wise men that we read about last week, and when they were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. And take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time that he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then it was fulfilled. That was what was spoken by the prophet Jeremy, spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying, in Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and he took the young child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, In the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. As we go through our study of this passage tonight, I want to accomplish three goals. Three main things that I want to work on. The first is I want to understand... How does Matthew interpret the Old Testament? Right? And the second goal is I want to see how is, does Matthew use the suffering surrounding Jesus' birth to present Jesus as the new Israel? Right? And the last thing I want to see is why does the sufferings of Jesus, or how can the sufferings of, sufferings of Jesus give us hope? Right? So we'll have a, three, kind of a big three-point outline. How should I read the Old Testament? What does Matthew mean that Jesus is the new Israel? And why does the sufferings of Jesus 
Why can we find hope in that? Let's start. Before we even dig into our passage anymore, I want to go back and talk a little bit about how Matthew interprets the Old Testament. Um, and I think it's going to be helpful to know that it's not just Matthew interprets it this way. It's, it's really every New Testament writer. Um, let, me, let, me, let me start and say even Jesus did this. And I want to go back to, do you remember in Luke chapter 24? It was right after Jesus had died. And then he had rose again. And the, there's these men from on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking on this road, and they're down. Um, Cannon uses the word mully grubs. They, I mean, they are, they're down. Because this guy that they had put their hope in, he's no more. And they think it's over. The whole thing's over. And as they're walking, Jesus appears to these men. And he starts talking to them, but they don't realize it's Jesus. In verse 27, it says that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Right? Do you know what that means? In Matthew, he's, he begins with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So it begins in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He says, this is, this is about me. He said, this is about the Christ. At that point, they don't know it's Jesus. And he walks all the way through the prophets, which are the last books of the Old Testament. Right? All the way through Malachi. And he says, from Genesis to Malachi... Or for you guys, it would be Genesis to Malachi. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Then Jesus goes away. And these men start talking to each other. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when he showed us Christ in the Old Testament? Didn't our hearts burn within us? And I think, is that how we read the Old Testament? I mean, if somebody opens up the Old Testament to you, do you think, man, my heart burns within me because I see Christ there? My guess is that for most of us, the Old Testament is hard to read, and there's not this excitement about meeting Christ in the Old Testament. And I think the reason is because we've trained ourselves to only see one little aspect of Jesus, but there's something bigger, right? We've trained ourselves to think Jesus fulfills predictions. There's promises or prophecies about Jesus that he fulfills. And if I read the Old Testament, I'm going to find these handful of prophecies, that he would be the son of Abraham, and he'd be the son of David, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And so far, Matthew's already pointed out some of those to us. And those are exciting. But the truth is, for the 39 books of the Old Testament, those predictions are a rather small part of the Old Testament. So if the thing that makes us excited about finding Jesus in the Old Testament are just these predictions, you're going to think, there's not that much to be excited about. And they're relatively hard to find. In fact, a lot of books don't have any predictions in them. Are they still about Jesus? Matthew's going to show us today that there's another way, in addition to these promises, that the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus. And that's by saying Jesus fulfills the story. Jesus is, another way of saying it, is the fullest version of the story. There's a quote here by Tolkien. Do you know who J.R. Tolkien is? He wrote Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. A really famous literary critic. 
right? He, he knows literature really well. He said, the gospel story is not one more story, story pointing to the underlying reality. It is the underlying reality to which all stories point. I'll read it again. He says, the gospel story of Jesus is not one more story pointing to the underlying reality. It is the underlying reality to which all stories point. Let me explain what he's doing here. If you love fiction, right, if you enjoy reading fiction, then you may have either defended it at some point or heard someone defend it for you. Why read fiction books? Why read make-believe stories? And most people will tell you the reason we read make-believe stories is because they help us, these make-believe stories help us understand the real world better. Right? We tell our children the story of the boy who cried wolf so that they can better understand what it means to be honest. Or in Tolkien's world, he writes about Sam and Samwise Gamgee and Frodo so that we can better understand what true friendship is like. And so these fiction people, these fiction apologists, the people who are defending fiction, say they help us understand reality better. They help us make, make believe stories. Their stories help us understand reality. But what Tolkien says is it's a little different than that. He says it's true, but the underlying reality that it helps us understand is Jesus. Our lives aren't the underlying reality. Jesus is. Tolkien says, when I look at the loyalty that Samwise shows to Frodo, uh, it tells me to be loyal, but it's because it gives me a picture of a God who is loyal. Right? When I see the valor of a courageous king like Aragon, I think, my king is courageous and valiant. The reason that stories resonate with us is because they give us a picture of the ultimate reality, the one who's more valiant than Aragon and more loyal than Samwise and obviously more honest than the boy who cries wolf right? He's the perfect ultimate reality. I think that's exactly what Matthew thinks the Old Testament does for us. These Old Testament stories paint a picture of the ultimate God. Let me give you some examples, right? You might already know that the New Testament authors do this over and over and over. Paul in Romans 5 says, you know, you remember Adam? And you remember how Adam is a representative of all men. Everybody who comes after Adam is just like Adam. They're guilty of the same sin. And then he says, Jesus is just like Adam, but he's better. Because everybody that comes after Adam benefits from his righteousness. Everyone for, I'm sorry, everyone who follows Jesus benefits from his righteousness. Everybody who follows Adam is in Adam's sin and they get death. Everybody who follows Jesus gets Jesus' righteousness and they get life. He says, I read Adam and I think, that's just like Jesus, but Jesus is better. He's, he's bigger than Adam, right? Or Hebrews has tons of examples. Uh, in, in Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews starts talking, you, you remember the temple? The temple was the place where the Jews could go to meet God. That's where God dwelt. He says, Jesus is like the temple. But Jesus is bigger and better than the temple because it's not that God just dwelled there. Jesus is God. 
And in the temple, we had a veil. So that even when we went to the temple, there's still separation. But with Jesus, the veil was ripped down, and we have direct access to our Father through Jesus. Jesus is the new temple and the better temple. See, these New Testament authors said everything you read in the Old Testament is helping you understand that someday there's coming somebody who's bigger and better, and that's Jesus. That's what Matthew means by Jesus fulfills it. He's the full feeling, filling of that expression. He's the fullest expression of the Old Testament. So let's look and see in Matthew chapter 2 how exactly Jesus does this. I'm sorry, how exactly Matthew shows that Jesus does this. We'll start in verse 12. I'm sorry, in verse 13. Remember the, the wise men, they've just departed and they've gone, they've gone away. And so Joseph gets another dream. And every time Joseph gets a dream, he knows it's time to move again. And the angel tells Joseph, you need to go to Egypt. The reason you need to go to Egypt is Herod is looking for your son. And he's about to kill him. And so Joseph packs up the family and they head down to Egypt. And you start thinking, well, why in the world... Would the king of the Jews, the son of God, be afraid of Herod? Because you can't convince me that God's afraid of Herod. Right, this is the exact same God that we saw in, for instance, in Judges. When the people reject God, he just opens up the ground and swallows them. Right, God's not afraid of Herod. Why in the world would Herod's threats make Jesus a fugitive? Verse 15 tells us. It says, And they did this to fulfill what was spoken by... Let me read it exactly. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Why did Jesus go to Egypt? Not because Herod was big and bad and scary. Because God wanted Jesus to fulfill what was written by the prophet. So we think, well, this must be a prediction. But you open up to Hosea chapter 11, which, by the way, if you look in your footnotes, if you want to know how to be a, uh, a Bible scholar when you're sitting in your small groups, you see a prophecy. This was to fulfill what was written by the prophets. And you think, where is that at? Look at the very bottom of your text, or sometimes in the middle column, and you're going to see a little reference that tells you where to look. And you'll look here, and it'll say, turn to Hosea 11.1. 1. Let me get caught up in my notes. You turn to Hosea 11.1, 1, and you start reading, and you see that this is not about the Messiah. Hosea is describing Israel. Hosea is saying, Israel, do you remember when you were called out of Egypt as my son? And what Matthew is saying is, Jesus is the new Israel. The same way that Israel suffered and was exiled to Egypt, now Jesus is the fuller version. Jesus has taken on what was true of Israel, and he's made it true of himself. Now, we don't yet know why Jesus is the same but better. At this point, we just know Jesus is the same. The same way that Israel was inaugurated by the exodus into Egypt, the exile into Egypt, Jesus' birth is followed immediately by his exile into Egypt. 
Jesus is the new Israel. Matthew keeps going on. And he starts telling about Herod's response. Herod finds out that the wise men weren't coming back, and Herod gets furious. Right? And Herod decides, I'm going to kill every single child below the age of two. Every single male child below the age of two, I'm going to kill them. And immediately we're thinking, isn't that just what happened when the Israelites were in Egypt? Didn't Pharaoh kill all the male children so that nobody would rise up and take over his country? Jesus is the new Israel. And then he quotes another passage. Why in the world did Herod threaten to kill all these children and actually did? To fulfill what was written by the prophet Jeremiah. Then it was fulfilled, that was, which was spoken by, the pro, spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So now Matthew is tying Jesus' experience to the experience of the nation of Israel. Death and suffering and weeping and crying. That's what Israel felt, and that's what Jesus and all the people around Jesus are feeling. The exact time that Jeremiah is referring to isn't actually the exile to Egypt. It's Israel's second exile, the deportation to Babylon. Israel's first great enslavement, Jesus is just like that. Israel's second great enslavement, Jesus is just like that. Matthew's saying Israel's king is sharing the worst of Israel's sufferings. Jesus is the new Israel, and what that means is Jesus suffers just like Israel. All of Israel's lowness, all of Israel's humiliation, all of Israel's enslavement, Jesus is taking it all upon himself. He's becoming the new Israel. And that means he's taking on their sufferings. I want to pause for just a second. This isn't something that Matthew's explaining, but I think it's exciting for me. Is I think in Herod's mind, Herod is wiping out people. Herod's committing atrocious evil, killing all the children below two and under. And it seems like this great evil is just gratuitous and mean. And what's the point of it? But it's clear in this passage that God is able to take Herod's evil and he's able to use it for good. Right? The same thing Joseph said. Remember when Joseph was sold into slavery in Genesis chapter 50 and his brothers come in and they're worried and they say, I wonder if Joseph will ever forgive us? And Joseph says, what you guys meant for evil... God meant it for good. I think it's pretty neat that the worst Herod could do, God was able to take it and weave it into something that is beautiful and something that's going to save us. He gives me hope in my suffering that it's not too big for God to use for his glory and for his good. Let me move to the third prophecy, the third way 
Jesus is going to be just like Israel. Remember, he's a deported, he's an exile, a fugitive, just like Israel was in Egypt. His suffering is great. There's lamentation, there's weeping, there's a refusal to be consoled, just like Israel. And the third one, after Herod dies, his son becomes the new king. And so Joseph gets another dream, another angel. And the angel says, go back to Israel, but you can't go where you wanted to go. We're going to go into Galilee, and you're going to have to reside in Nazareth. And this is to fulfill what was written by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a tricky one. Because if you've looked at your footnotes, you've noticed your footnotes probably say Hosea 1, I mean, Hosea 11.1, and that's where the Old Testament quote was. The second quote, you saw Jeremiah 31.15, so you knew that, okay, that's related to the Old Testament. But here, you don't have any footnote. I don't know, maybe some of you might have the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It makes it even more clear, because any time in the New Testament that the Old Testament is quoted in the Holman Christian Standard, it's in big, bold letters. And you see your first quote is in bold letters, and your second quote's in bold letters, and this quote is not. So again, a skeptic's going to say, Matthew doesn't know what he's doing, he's just making stuff up. Here's the key to it. If ever you're in a class and your professor tries to tell you that Matthew doesn't know what he's doing, say that's not true. Because in the first time, Matthew says, this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. Second time, this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. And the third time, he says, this is fulfilling what was spoken by the prophets. Right? In the prophets, I'll summarize what they are saying by saying that Jesus was a Nazarene. So that's why we can get this quote where he says this is fulfilling something, but he's not giving a direct quote. Now, that doesn't necessarily help us know what it means, but it's why we know Matthew's not just making things up. The question is, what does it mean that Jesus is a Nazarene? Why would he say that, and how does that fulfill the prophets? I don't know if y'all know who I'm named after. It was a disciple in the New Testament. His name was Nathaniel. And he has one real claim to fame, and that is in the first chapter of John, he meets, well, his brother said, come and meet Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's my claim to fame. But what he points out is that Nazareth is the laughingstock of the ancient Near East, right? I grew up in Virginia, and for us, we made West Virginia jokes, right? They would have made Nazareth jokes. Who do y'all make jokes about? You are the joke. I think we got some West Virginia people here, though. I'm sorry. My family came to what, from West Virginia to Virginia, but we, we pretended that we didn't. We still said jokes. Nazareth is, a pl- Nazareth is the butt of the jokes. What he's saying is that Jesus settled among the lowest people in all of Israel. The king of Israel becomes lowly and despised and rejected and settles among a people that are lowly and despised and rejected. Some people think 
that this is actually a fulfillment of prediction. Remember we said that there's two ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's fulfilling a prediction. There's tons of predictions about how the Messiah is going to be low. We looked at one just a few weeks ago. Remember we looked on Sunday morning as Isaiah 53? I'll read verses 2 and 3. Isaiah is predicting what the Messiah is going to look like, and it says, He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, and he didn't have any impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like somebody that people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. You're saying that's what it means for Jesus to be a Nazarene. He was a guy that we didn't even want to look at. Didn't pay him any mind because he was just with the lowly. Personally, I believe that's only part of what Matthew's doing. Because the first two prophecies, right, the first two fulfillments are to say that he's just like Israel. I think Matthew is giving a little underhanded jab here to say, and Israel, you are Nazarenes. He's just like you, because Israel is, if Israel's famous for anything, it's that they have had the hardest history of any nation in the world. Slaves, over and over and over. The Holocaust, often they're not even a country, they don't get to even go to their own place. Israel is the lowest of countries when you look at them and think, what's their status among the world? And Matthew's saying, Jesus is one of you. He's the low. He's the fugitive that goes to slavery in Egypt. He's the one that there's no consoling because his birth brings suffering and, and sadness. He's the low, the weak, the despised, the one that nobody will look at. This is Jesus our King. And you think, oh, that's sad. So my warning was to you when we started, this is a sad passage. But I also believe that there's some real joy in this passage for us. And that is the fact that Jesus chose to associate himself and align himself with the lowly is why he can relate to us. You, are you familiar with Hebrews four fifteen? It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. Let us then with every confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. One of the great joys of serving a lowly king is that he accepts the lowly. I never got to hear Warren Wearsby preach. I don't know. If some of you have, you, you may have seen his books, the uh, B series, it's a, a group of commentaries. But I heard a pastor summarize one of his messages, and I found it in one of his books as well. Warren Wearsby said, of all the names of God, his favorite name is Jesus of Nazareth. Of all the names, Jesus of Nazareth. And I thought, that's strange. 
we just thought about how low that is. Why would that be his favorite name? And Warren Wearsby goes on to say, well, if you and I were writing this story, he wouldn't have been Jesus of Nazareth. He would have been maybe Jesus of Jerusalem, Jesus of Rome maybe, Jesus of Athens. And he says, but I'm glad he was Jesus of Nazareth. If he was Jesus of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the capital of religion. That's where your priests and your saints and your holy people, the people that were the most pious and the most righteous, what if that were the people that Jesus chose to associate with? What if in order to be with Jesus, you needed to be the most pious, the most holy, the most righteous? Hopefully this won't get me in trouble, but Pastor Johnny, I know that you in college were in a fraternity, and I know that fraternities have a little reputation. So I wonder, aren't you glad it's Jesus of Nazareth and not Jesus of Jerusalem? Right? If Jesus, if my righteousness is what gets me in with Jesus, our pastor wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> I wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> That's dangerous because he's, he's my boss, but he's also my father-in-law. You got to take a risk for the gospel. <laughs> and our party was the lowest of the low. <laughs> That's right. But I mean, what a joy that Jesus did. He came for the lowest of the low. What if he was Jesus of Rome? Jesus for the politically active, for the people with influence and power and wealth. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and I'll betray my ignorance here, but we always would say these things like, what if this person became a Christian? So we would talk about these famous people. Well, man, can you just imagine if I don't know, Will Smith became a Christian? That was who was big in, when I was in high school. Can you imagine if this famous person became a Christian, what God could do then? But God says, don't you understand? I came to associate not with the famous, but with the lowly. And if God only came to associate with rich people, he wouldn't have associated with me. If it was only for the greatest leaders, the most influential, he wouldn't have associated with me. I'm glad it's Jesus of Nazareth and not Jesus of Rome. What about Athens? Right? That was Wearsby's other one. Athens is the city of intellectual brilliance. They're philosophers, rationalists, culture. It's the creme a la creme of society. What if that's who Jesus associated with? If you had to be smart enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. What if you had to have a certain number of degrees to get into the kingdom of heaven? Had to have read a certain number of books. If you, had to read, if you had to be cultured, if you had to be good at music, I was the only, to my knowledge, I'm the only person in the history of my school to be cut from middle school band. <laughs> the only person in the history of my school to be cut from middle school band. Don't go after him, John. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm glad Jesus didn't come for the cultured. Just, you might think, well, hey, maybe, maybe I have a lot of education because I just got a master's degree in Bibles. But I'll tell you that my first Greek class I took, I got a four on one of my exams. That's out of 100. Four out of 100. And I'm glad that Jesus didn't come for the brilliance. Jesus came for the lowly and the despised. That's great news. It's great news if you recognize that you're the lowly. Interestingly, that's why a lot of Israel throughout the rest of Matthew are going to miss them. They don't view themselves as people of need. They don't view themselves as a Nazarene. They view themselves as a citizen of Jerusalem, the most righteous, the most intelligent, or the most powerful. In a few chapters, we'll get to Matthew 9, and he'll say, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinners. The healthy have no need of a physician, only the sick. I'm glad Jesus came for the sick. That's encouraging to me. That's encouraging to me. Even at his lowest, I see what a blessing. Man of sorrows, what a name. What a name. There's another reason I think it's really encouraging that Jesus is the new Israel, that he suffered all of what Israel suffered. It's because, remember when we started that Jesus was always like something, but better. Jesus was like Adam, but he was better than Adam. Jesus was like the temple, but he was better than the temple. I think if Jesus only came to associate with me, or to relate with me, or to feel my pains, that would be nice, but it wouldn't solve my problems. But Jesus is the true and better Israel. The promises that God gave to Israel, the charges that God gave to Israel, Jesus is going to come and fulfill them in a way that Israel never did. In Exodus, God calls Israel, he says, I've called you out to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And the priests are the people who introduce or bring or mediate between God and men. Right, if you need to talk to God, if you need to know God, you need a priest to do that. Jesus is like Israel. He's a good priest, but he's not just a good priest. He's the great priest. He is God, and he has torn down the barrier that separates me from God. Jesus is not just Israel. He's the new and better Israel. He's the perfect priest that gives me access to God. That's why it's really exciting that Matthew's saying, hey, he's just like Israel. Because I know that Matthew's getting ready to say, but better. Another charge, you remember we looked at um, Genesis 15 and 17 and Genesis 12 and the promises to Abraham about what the nation of Israel was going to be. We started in Genesis 3 and we saw that God had brought a curse for sin and because sin We were going to have toil and pain, labor, uh, tears, broken relationships, and ultimately death. 
And he says to Israel, he says to Abraham, I'm going to bring a nation from you. That nation's going to be Israel, and they're going to be a blessing to the entire world. As sin brought a curse, Israel will bring a blessing. And in a lot of ways, Israel was a blessing. But Jesus Christ is the ultimate blessing. He's the ultimate reality to which the Israel was pointing. Israel helped picture God. Jesus is God. Israel helped mediate the curse with their system. Jesus obliterates the curse. The curse brought death. Jesus says, I've come to bring life. God sent his only son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, but will have everlasting life. And that's because he's the new Israel, but he's the better Israel. It's exciting. Even in the lowest of Jesus' place, even when we see him exiled to Egypt, suffering, agony, unwilling to be consoled, and associating with the lowest of people, we know that this is the man who we can stake our hopes on. He's come to relate to us, to know us, but also to save us and to deliver us. That's why it's so exciting to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. Not just the predictions, but he's the fullest and the best picture of salvation that the Old Testament or the New could ever picture. Jesus is the best. I'm going to pray, and then the music team and Pastor Johnny will close us. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are willing to associate with the lowest of the low because that means you're willing to associate with us. We're a people that struggle mightily. We have habits, hurts, and hang-ups, and they're, uh, they're intense. But that's the exact people you came to save. Give us hope in your ability and your willingness to save us. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Nathaniel. You want a message to grab hold of. As, as, as Christ through Matthew has just been revealed as the new and the better Israel. You folks, he understood exile. He understood the hurting and the pain and the welling. And he understood lowliness. That's the type of Savior that God sent us. And the important is that, is folks, that's where most of us live. He came for folks like you and me. And tonight as we, we come and we, 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 we have a time where you meet with him. This is why this time is important because it's time for you not only to, to process, but to do something about it. And maybe God stirred your heart. The, 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 the thought of, of Jesus the Nazarene, the favorite title for himself. You know, what good can come out of Nazareth? You maybe even think to yourself, what good can come out of me? Nothing apart from Jesus Christ. But see, Jesus knows where you are. And, um, and I thank God for that. Nathaniel, I, I was president-elect, buddy.
until Miss Wandesu showed up. I thank God that he could save a wretch like me. And um, folks, I don't know where you are. Maybe tonight that you know, you're, you're, you're just in love with Jesus, but tonight, because of this passage, it just made you that much more thankful for him. You may just want to come and say, well, thank you, Lord. Get on your knees and praise you, God, that you were made lowly, that you could associate with me. Or maybe tonight you've never met this Jesus. Maybe tonight that you think, wow, how could Jesus save a person like me? You're the person he came for. You're the, you're the reason he went through all this he went through so that you could know that he knows where you are. And what he says is coming to me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. John, aren't you glad that, that Jesus came for the lowly? And, that, and that he knows where you are. He knows where you are. Folks, we need to give him the praise. We need to give him the worship that he deserves. These altars open if you need to come to the altar. If you need to to have some, you know, if you need to talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come.